33. Attitude was taken by a man who refused to study science. Tennyson, whose work is always artistic, never studied art, but was devoted to the sciences, while Browning, whose work is seldom artistic in form, thought that art was the most suitable subject for a man's study. The two poets differ even more widely in their respective messages. Tennyson's message reflects the growing order of the age, and is summed up in the word, law. In his view, the individual will must be suppressed, the self must always be subordinate. His resignation is at times almost oriental in its fatalism, and occasionally it suggests Schopenhauer in its mixture of fate and pessimism. Browning's message, on the other hand, is the triumph of the individual will over all obstacles, the self is not subordinate but supreme. There is nothing oriental, nothing doubtful, nothing pessimistic in the whole range of his poetry. His is the voice of the Anglo-Saxon, standing up in the face of all obstacles and saying, I can and I will. The island therefore, far more radically English than is Tennyson, and it may be for this reason that he is the more studied, and that, while youth delights in Tennyson, manhood is better satisfied with Browning, because of his invincible will and optimism. Browning is at present regarded as the poet who has spoken the strongest word of faith to an age of doubt. His energy, his cheerful courage, his faith in life and in the development that awaits us beyond the portals of death, are like a bugle call to good living. This sums up his present influence upon the minds of those who have learned to appreciate him. Of the future we can only say that, both at home and abroad, he seems to be gaining steadily in appreciation as the years go by. Minor Poets of the B.I.S.D.O.R.I.A.N. Age Elizabeth Barrett Among the minor poets of the past century Elizabeth Barrett Mrs. Browning occupies perhaps the highest place in popular favor. She was born at Coe Hall, near Durham, in 1806 but her childhood and early youth were spent in Herefordshire, among the Malvern Hills made famous by Piers Plowman. In 1835 the Barrett family moved to London, where Elizabeth gained a literary reputation by the publication of The Seraphim and Other Poems 1838. Then illness and the shock caused by the tragic death of her brother, in 1840, placed her frail life in danger, and for six years she was confined to her own room. The innate strength and beauty of her spirit here showed itself strongly in her daily study, her poetry, and especially in her interest in the social problems which sooner or later occupied all the Victorian writers. My mind to me a kingdom is, might well have been written over the door of the room where this delicate invalid worked and suffered in loneliness and in silence. In 1844 Miss Barrett published her poems, which, though somewhat impulsive and overwrought, met with remarkable public favor. Such poems as, The Cry of the Children, which voices the protest of humanity against child labor, appealed tremendously to the readers of the age, and this young woman's fame as a poet temporarily overshadowed that of Tennyson and Browning. Indeed, as late as 1850, when Wordsworth died, she was seriously considered for the position of Poet Laureate, which was finally given to Tennyson, a reference to Browning, in, Lady Geraldine's Courtship is supposed to have first led the poet to write to Miss Barrett in 1845. Soon afterwards he visited the invalid, they fell in love almost at first sight, and the following year, against the wishes of her father, who was evidently a selfish old tyrant, Browning carried her off and married her. The exquisite romance of their love is reflected in Mrs. Browning's sonnets from the Portuguese 1850. This is a noble and inspiring book of love poems, and Stedman regards the opening sonnet. I thought once how Theocritus had sung, 
as equal to any in our language. For fifteen years the Brownings lived an ideally happy life at Pisa, and at Cosagetti, Florence, sharing the same poetical ambitions, and love was the greatest thing in the world. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach, when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need, my sun and candlelight. I love thee freely, as men strive for right, I love thee purely, as they turn from praise, I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs, and with my childhood's faith, I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost saints, I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears, of all my life, and, if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. Mrs. Browning entered with whole-souled enthusiasm into the aspirations of Italy in its struggle against the tyranny of Austria, and her cause against Windows 1851 is a combination of poetry and politics, both, it must be confessed, a little too emotional. In 1856 she published Aurora Lee, a novel in verse, having for its hero a young social reformer, and for its heroine a young woman, poetical and enthusiastic who strongly suggests Elizabeth Baird herself. It emphasizes in verse precisely the same moral and social ideals which Dickens and George Eliot were proclaiming in all their novels. Her last two volumes were poems before Congress 1860, and last poems, published after her death. She died suddenly in 1861 and was buried in Florence. Browning's famous line, O lyric love, half angel and half bird, may well apply to her frail life and aerial spirit. Rossetti, Dandy Gabriel Rossetti 1828-1882, the son of an exiled Italian painter and scholar, was distinguished both as a painter and as a poet. He was a leader in the pre-Raphaelite movement and published in the first numbers of the germ his Hand and Soul, a delicate prose study, and his famous The Blessed Damozel, beginning, The Blessed Damozel leaned out from the gold bar of heaven, her eyes were deeper than the depth of water stilled at even, she had three lilies in her hand, and the stars in her hair were seven, these two early works, especially, the blessed Damozel, with its simplicity and exquisite spiritual quality, are characteristic of the ideals of the pre-Raphaelites, in 1860, after a long engagement, Rossetti married Elizabeth Siddle, a delicate, beautiful English girl, whom he has immortalized both in his pictures and in his poetry, she died two years later, and Rossetti never entirely recovered from the shock. At her burial he placed in her coffin the manuscripts of all his unpublished poems, and only at the persistent demands of his friends did he allow them to be exhumed and printed in 1870. The publication of this volume of love poems created a sensation in literary circles, and Rossetti was hailed as one of the greatest of living poets. In 1881 he published his ballads and sonnets a remarkable volume containing, among other poems, The Confession, modeled after Browning, The Ballad of Sister Helen, founded on a medieval superstition, The King's Tragedy, a masterpiece of dramatic narrative, and The House of Life, a collection of 101 sonnets reflecting the poet's love and loss. This last collection deserves to rank with Mrs. Browning's sonnets from the Portuguese and with Shakespeare's sonnets, as one of the three great cycles of love poems in our language. It has been well said that both Rossetti and Morris paint pictures as well in their poems as on their canvases, and this pictorial quality of their verse is its chief characteristic. Morris, William Morris 1834-1896 is a most interesting combination of literary man and artist, 
in the latter capacity, as architect, designer, and manufacturer of furniture, carpets, and wallpaper, and as founder of the Kelmscott Press for artistic printing and bookbinding, he has laid us all under an immense debt of gratitude. From boyhood he had steeped himself in the legends and ideals of the Middle Ages, and his best literary work is wholly medieval in spirit. The Earthly Paradise 1868-1870 is generally regarded as his masterpiece. This delightful collection of stories in verse tells of a roving band of Vikings, who are wrecked on the fabled island of Atlantis, and who discover there a superior race of men having the characteristics of ideal Greeks. The Vikings remain for a year, telling stories of their own Northland, and listening to the classic and oriental tales of their hosts. Morris's interest in Icelandic literature is further shown by his Sigurd the Volsung, an epic founded upon one of the old sagas, and by his prose romances, The House of the Wolfings, The Story of the Glittering Plain, and The Roots of the Mountains. Later in life he became deeply interested in socialism, and to other romances, The Dream of John Ball and News from Nowhere, are interesting as modern attempts at depicting an ideal society governed by the principles of Moore's Utopia. Swinburne Algernon Charles Swinburne 1837-1909 Island Chronologically, the last of the Victorian poets, as an artist in technique having perfect command of all old English verse forms and a remarkable faculty for inventing new he seems at the present time to rank among the best in our literature. Indeed, as Stegman says, before his advent we did not realize the full scope of English verse. This refers to the melodious and constantly changing form rather than to the content of Swinburne's poetry. At the death of Tennyson, in 1892, he was undoubtedly the greatest living poet, and only his liberal opinions, his scorn of royalty and of conventions, and the prejudice aroused by the pagan spirit of his early work prevented his appointment as poet laureate. He has written a very large number of poems, dramas, and essays in literary criticism but we are still too near to judge of the permanence of his work or of his place in literature. Those who would read and estimate his work for themselves will do well to begin with a volume of selected poems, especially those which show his love of the sea and his exquisite appreciation of child life. His Atlanta in Caledon 1864, a beautiful lyric drama modeled on the Greek tragedy, is generally regarded as his masterpiece. In all his works Swinburne carries Tennyson's love of melody to an extreme and often sacrifices sense to sound, his poetry is always musical, and, like music, appeals almost exclusively to the emotions, we have chosen, somewhat arbitrarily, these four writers Mrs. Browning, D.G. Rossetti, Morris, and Swinburne as representative of the minor poets of the age, but there are many others who are worthy of study, Arthur Hugh Clough and Matthew Arnold, who are often called the poets of skepticism but who in reality represent a reverent seeking for truth through reason and human experience, Frederick William Faber, the Catholic mystic, author of some exquisite hymns, and the scholarly John Keeble, author of The Christian Year, our best-known book of devotional verse, and among the women poets, Adelaide Proctor, Jean Inchlow, and Christina Rossetti, each of whom had a large, admiring circle of readers. It would be a hopeless task at the present time to inquire into the relative merits of all these minor poets. We note only their careful workmanship and exquisite melody, their wide range of thought and feeling, their eager search for truth, each in his own way, and especially the note of freshness and vitality which they have given to English poetry. I.I.
The novelists of the Victorian age Charles Dickens 1812-1871 we consider Dickens's life and work. In comparison with that of the two great poets we have been studying, the contrast is startling. While Tennyson and Browning were being educated for the life of literature, and shielded most tenderly from the hardships of the world, Dickens, a poor, obscure, and suffering child, was helping to support a shiftless family by pasting labels on blacking bottles, sleeping under a counter like a homeless cat, and once a week timidly approaching the big prison where his father was confined for debt. In 1836 his Pickwick was published, and life was changed as if a magician had waved his wand over him. While the two great poets were slowly struggling for recognition, Dickens, with plenty of money and too much fame, was the acknowledged literary hero of England, the idol of immense audiences which gathered to applaud him wherever he appeared, and there is also this striking contrast between the novelist and the poets, that while the whole tendency of the age was toward realism, away from the extremes of the romanticists and from the oddities and absurdities of the early novel writers, it was precisely by emphasizing oddities and absurdities, by making caricatures rather than characters, that Dickens first achieved his popularity, life. In Dickens's early life we see a stern but unrecognized preparation for the work that he was to do. Never was there a better illustration of the fact that a boy's early hardship and suffering are sometimes only divine messengers disguised, and that circumstances which seem only evil are often the source of a man's strength and of the influence which he is to wield in the world. He was the second of eight poor children, and was born at Landport in 1812. His father, who is supposed to be the original of Mr. Micawber, was a clerk in a navy office. He could never make both ends meet, and after struggling with debts in his native town for many years, moved to London when Dickens was nine years old. The debt still pursued him, and after two years of grandiloquent misfortune he was thrown into the poor debtor's prison. His wife, the original of Mrs. Micawber, then set up the famous boarding establishment for young ladies, but, in Dickens's words, no young ladies ever came, the only visitors were the creditors, and they were quite ferocious, in the picture of the Micawber family, with its tears and smiles and general shiftlessness, we have a suggestion of Dickens's own family life, at 11 years of age the boy was taken out of school and went to work in the cellar of a blacking factory, at this time he was, in his own words, a queer small boy, who suffered as he worked, and we can appreciate the boy and the suffering more when we find both reflected in the character of David Copperfield. It is a heart-rending picture, this sensitive child working from dawn till dark for a few pennies, and associating with tufts and waves in his brief intervals of labor, but we can see in it the sources of that intimate knowledge of the hearts of the poor and outcast which was soon to be reflected in literature and to startle all England by its appeal for sympathy. A small legacy ended this wretchedness bringing the father from the prison and sending the boy to Wellington House Academy, a worthless and brutal school, evidently, whose headmaster was, in Dickens's words, a most ignorant fellow and a tyrant. He learned little at this place, being interested chiefly in stories, and in acting out the heroic parts which appealed to his imagination, but again his personal experience was of immense value, and resulted in his famous picture of Dothboys Hall, in Nicholas Nickleby which helped largely to mitigate the evils of private schools in England. Wherever he went, Dickens was a marvelously keen observer, with an active imagination which made stories out of incidents and characters that ordinary men would have hardly noticed. 
Moreover he was a born actor, and was at one time the leading spirit of a band of amateurs who gave entertainments for charity all over England. These three things, his keen observation, his active imagination, and the actor's spirit which animated him, furnish a key to his life and writings. When only fifteen years old, he left the school and again went to work, this time as clerk in a lawyer's office. By night he studied shorthand, in order to fit himself to be a reporter. This in imitation of his father, who was now engaged by a newspaper to report the speeches in Parliament. Everything that Dickens attempted seems to have been done with vigor and intensity, and within two years we find him reporting important speeches, and writing out his notes as the heavy coach lurched and rolled through the mud of country roads on its dark way to London town. It was largely during this period that he gained his extraordinary knowledge of inns and stables and horsey persons, which is reflected in his novels. He also grew ambitious, and began to write on his own account. At the age of twenty-one he dropped his first little sketch, stealthily, with fear and trembling, into a dark letter box, in a dark office of a dark court in Fleet Street. The name of this first sketch was, Mr. Minns and his cousin, and it appeared with other stories in his first book, Sketches by Boz, in 1835. One who reads these sketches now, with their intimate knowledge of the hidden life of London, can understand Dickens's first newspaper success perfectly. His best-known work, Pickwick, was published serially in 1836-1837, and Dickens's fame and fortune were made. Never before had a novel appeared so full of vitality and merriment, though crude in design, a mere jumble of exaggerated characters and incidents. It fairly bubbled over with the kind of humor in which the British public delights, and it still remains, after three quarters of a century, one of our most care-dispelling books. The remainder of Dickens's life is largely a record of personal triumphs. Pickwick was followed rapidly by Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby, Old Curiosity Shop, and by many other works which seem to indicate that there was no limit to the new author's invention of odd, grotesque, uproarious, and sentimental characters. In the intervals of his novel writing he attempted several times to edit a weekly paper, but his power lay in other directions, and with the exception of household words, his journalistic ventures were not a marked success. Again the actor came to the surface, and after managing a company of amateur actors successfully, Dickens began to give dramatic readings from his own works, as he was already the most popular writer in the English language. These readings were very successful, crowds thronged to hear him, and his journeys became a continuous ovation. Money poured into his pockets from his novels and from his readings and he bought for himself a home, Gadshill Place, which he had always desired, and which is forever associated with his memory, though he spent the greater part of his time and strength in travel at this period. Nothing is more characteristic of the man than the intense energy with which he turned from his lecturing to his novels, and then, for relaxation, gave himself up to what he called the magic lantern of the London streets. In 1842, while still a young man, Dickens was invited to visit the United States and Canada, where his works were even better known than in England, and where he was received as the guest of the nation and treated with every mark of honor and appreciation. At this time America was, to most Europeans, a kind of huge fairyland, where money sprang out of the earth, and life was happy as a long holiday. Dickens evidently shared this rosy view, and his romantic expectations were naturally disappointed. The crude, 
and finished look of the big country seems to have roused a strong prejudice in his mind, which was not overcome at the time of his second visit, 25 years later, and which brought forth the harsh criticism of his American Notes 1842 and of Martin Cheselwood 1843-1844. These two unkind books struck a false note, and Dickens began to lose something of his great popularity. In addition he had spent money beyond his income, his domestic life, which had been at first very happy, became more and more irritating, until he separated from his wife in 1858, to get inspiration, which seemed for a time to have failed, he journeyed to Italy, but was disappointed, then he turned back to the London streets, and in the five years from 1848 to 1853 appeared Dummy and Son, David Copperfield, and Bleak House three remarkable novels, which indicate that he had rediscovered his own power and genius. Later he resumed the public readings, with their public triumph and applause, which soon came to be a necessity to one who craved popularity as a hungry man craves bread. These excitements exhausted Dickens, physically and spiritually, and death was the inevitable result. He died in 1870, over his unfinished Edwin Drood, and was buried in Westminster Abbey. Dickens's work in view of his life. A glance through even this unsatisfactory biography gives us certain illuminating suggestions in regard to all of Dickens's work. First, as a child, poor and lonely, longing for love and for society, he laid the foundation for those heart-rending pictures of children, which have moved so many readers to unaccustomed tears. Second, as clerk in a lawyer's office and in the courts, he gained his knowledge of an entirely different side of human life. Here he learned to understand both the enemies and the victims of society, between whom the harsh laws of that day frequently made no distinction. Third, as a reporter, and afterwards as manager of various newspapers, he learned the trick of racy writing, and of knowing to a nicety what would suit the popular taste. Fourth, as an actor, always an actor in spirit, he seized upon every dramatic possibility, every tense situation every peculiarity of voice and gesture in the people whom he met, and reproduced these things in his novels, exaggerating them in the way that most pleased his audience. When we turn from his outward training to his inner disposition we find two strongly marked elements. The first is his excessive imagination, which made good stories out of incidents that ordinarily pass unnoticed, and which describe the commonest things a street, a shop, a fog, a lamppost a stagecoach with a wealth of detail and of romantic suggestion that makes many of his descriptions like lyric poems. The second element is his extreme sensibility, which finds relief only in laughter and tears. Like shadow and sunshine these follow one another closely throughout all his books. Remembering these two things, his training and disposition, we can easily foresee the kind of novel he must produce. He will be sentimental, especially over children and outcasts. He will excuse the individual in view of the faults of society, he will be dramatic or melodramatic, and his sensibility will keep him always close to the public, studying its tastes and playing with its smiles and tears. If pleasing the public be in itself an art, then Dickens is one of our greatest artists, and it is well to remember that in pleasing his public there was nothing of the hypocrite or demagogue in his makeup. He was essentially a part of the great drifting panoramic crowd that he loved. His sympathetic soul made all their joys and griefs his own. He fought against injustice, he championed the weak against the strong, he gave courage to the faint, and hope to the weary in heart, and in the love which the public gave him in return he found his best reward. 
Here is the secret of Dickens's unprecedented popular success. And we may note here a very significant parallel with Shakespeare. The great difference in the genius and work of the two men does not change the fact that each won success largely because he studied and pleased his public. General plan of Dickens's novels. An interesting suggestion comes to us from a study of the conditions which led to Dickens's first three novels. Pickwick was written, at the suggestion of an editor, for serial publication. Each chapter was to be accompanied by a cartoon by Seymour a comic artist of the day, and the object was to amuse the public, and, incidentally, to sell the paper. The result was a series of characters and scenes and incidents which for vigor and boundless fun have never been equaled in our language. Thereafter, no matter what he wrote, Dickens was a well the humorist, like a certain American writer of our own generation. Everything he said, whether for a feast or a funeral, was supposed to contain a laugh. In a word, he was the victim of his own book. Dickens was keen enough to understand his danger, and his next novel, Oliver Twist, had the serious purpose of mitigating the evils under which the poor were suffering. Its hero was a poor child, the unfortunate victim of society, and, in order to draw attention to the real need, Dickens exaggerated the woeful condition of the poor and filled his pages with sentiment which easily slipped over into sentimentality. This also was a popular success, and in his third novel, Nicholas Nickleby, and indeed in most of his remaining works, Dickens combined the principles of his first two books, giving us murder on the one hand, injustice and suffering on the other, mingling humor and pathos, tears and laughter, as we find them in life itself, and in order to increase the lights and shadows in his scenes, and to give greater dramatic effect to his narrative, he introduced odious and loathsome characters, and made vice more hateful by contrasting it with innocence and virtue. We find, therefore, in most of Dickens's novels three or four widely different types of character, first, the innocent little child, like Oliver, Joe, Paul, Tiny Tim, and Little Nell, appealing powerfully to the child love in every human heart, sconed, the horrible or grotesque foil like Spurs, Fagan, Quilp, Uriah Heap, and Bill Sykes, Thurord, the grandiloquent or broadly humorous fellow, the fun maker, like Micawber and Sam Weller, and fourth, a tenderly or powerfully drawn figure, like Lady Dedlock of Bleak House, and Sidney Carton of A Tale of Two Cities, which rise to the dignity of true characters. We note also that most of Dickens's novels belong decidedly to the class of purpose or problem novels. Thus Bleak House attacks, the laws delays, Little Dorrit, the injustice which persecutes poor debtors, Nicholas Nickleby, the abuses of charity schools and brutal schoolmasters, and Oliver Twist, the unnecessary degradation and suffering of the poor in English workhouses. Dickens's serious purpose was to make the novel the instrument of morality and justice, and whatever we may think of the exaggeration of his characters. It is certain that his stories did more to correct the general selfishness and injustice of society toward the poor than all the works of other literary men of his age combined. The limitations of Dickens. Any severe criticism of Dickens as a novelist must seem, at first glance, unkind and unnecessary. In almost every house he is a welcome guest, a personal friend who has beguiled many an hour with his stories, and who has furnished us much good laughter and a few good tears. Moreover, he has always a cheery message. He emphasizes the fact that this is an excellent world, that some errors have crept into it, due largely to thoughtlessness, but that they can be easily remedied by a little human sympathy. 
that is a most welcome creed to an age overburdened with social problems, and to criticize our cheery companion seems as discourteous as to speak unkindly of a guest who has just left our home. But we must consider Dickens not merely as a friend, but as a novelist, and apply to his work the same standards of art which we apply to other writers, and when we do this we are sometimes a little disappointed. We must confess that his novels, while they contain many realistic details, seldom give the impression of reality. His characters, though we laugh or weep or shudder at them, are sometimes only caricatures, each one an exaggeration of some peculiarity, which suggests Ben Jonson's every man in his humor. It is Dickens's art to give his heroes sufficient reality to make them suggest certain types of men and women whom we know, but in reading him we find ourselves often in the mental state of a man who is watching through a microscope the swarming life of the water. Drop. Here are lively, bustling, extraordinary creatures, some beautiful, some grotesque, but all far apart from the life that we know in daily experience. It is certainly not the reality of these characters, but rather the genius of the author in managing them, which interests us and holds our attention, notwithstanding this criticism, which we would gladly have omitted. Dickens is excellent reading and his novels will continue to be popular just so long as men enjoy wholesome and absorbing story. What to read, aside from the reforms in schools and prisons and workhouses which Dickens accomplished, he has laid us all, rich and poor alike, under a debt of gratitude. After the year 1843 the one literary work which he never neglected was to furnish a Christmas story for his readers, and it is due in some measure to the help of these stories, brimming over with good cheer. That Christmas has become in all English-speaking countries a season of gladness, of gift-giving at home, and of remembering those less fortunate than ourselves, who are still members of a common brotherhood. If we read nothing else of Dickens, once a year, at Christmas time, we should remember him and renew our youth by reading one of his holiday stories, The Cricket on the Hearth, The Chimes, and above all the unrivaled Christmas Carol. The latter especially will be read and loved as long as men are moved by the spirit of Christmas. Of the novels, David Copperfield is regarded by many as Dickens's masterpiece. It is well to begin with this novel, not simply for the unusual interest of the story, but also for the glimpse it gives us of the author's own boyhood and family. For pure fun and hilarity Pickwick will always be a favorite, but for artistic finish, and for the portrayal of one great character, Sidney Carton. Nothing else that Dickens wrote is comparable to a tale of two cities. Here is an absorbing story, with a carefully constructed plot, and the action moves swiftly to its thrilling, inevitable conclusion. Usually Dickens introduces several pathetic or grotesque or laughable characters besides the main actors, and records various unnecessary dramatic episodes for their own sake, but in a tale of two cities everything has its place in the development of the main story. There are, as usual, many characters. Sidney Carton, the outcast, who lays down his life for the happiness of one whom he loves, Charles Darnay, an exiled young French noble, Dr. Manette, who has been recalled to life from a frightful imprisonment, and his gentle daughter Lucy, the heroine, Jarvis Laurie, a lovable, old-fashioned clerk in the big banking house, the terrible Madame Defarge, knitting calmly at the door of her wine shop and recording, with the ferocity of a tiger licking its chops the names of all those who are marked for vengeance, and a dozen others, each well-drawn, who play minor parts in the tragedy. The scene is late in London and Paris, at the time of the French Revolution, and, though careless of historical detail, 